the freaking out squares criticism is a valid criticism, but I'll just say I was a square and I was freaked out. So it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where experienced musicians, old friends, select an album from Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die each week, and then we discuss and analyze, break down, laugh about it, complain about it. This week, we've been listening to The Velvet Underground's The Velvet Underground and Nico. And of course, we encourage you to play along with this. Hopefully, you turn this podcast on because you're at least slightly familiar or interested in hearing more about the Velvet Underground's debut album. We're about to give you a bunch of hot takes, a bunch of jackass opinions. We're going to dive deep into a few selected tracks. And at the end of this, we're going to ultimately vote as to whether or not this album is really something you absolutely need to hear, must hear before you die. And then after that, we're going to randomly select next week's album and set our sights on listening to that so we can dive into that next week, and we encourage you to play along from there. So very excited this week to be talking about The Velvet Underground's debut album released in 1967. It's called The Velvet Underground and Nico. And maybe by way of just introducing who's on the call with us, I'll kick it around the room and I'd love to hear sort of a tweet-length review of the album, if that's okay. So, first, here we have the lovely Tom. Hi, I am Tom, and I am convinced that this album is what convinced Yoko Ono that she could be a musician. <laughs> Great, we're going we're gonna to kick that Wait, on she was to... a, mu- a musician? <laughs> Debatable. Big air quotes on that one. Gigantic air quotes. Debatable. We're going we're gonna to kick it on to Adam now. Hey, everybody. I'm Adam. And uh, I'll just summarize by saying the curmudgeon is back. <laughs> nice. Okay. See where this is leading. So we'll move on to <laughs> Mr. Allen, please jump in. I'm Alan, and listening to this, I felt like I was at some beatnik hipster party where I was the only one who wasn't in on the scene. <laughs> And Phil, we're going to kick it to you now. Yeah, Phil Matarazzi here. Uh, you guys know me at this point. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with, uh, who are you kidding? This is the father of Indy. Great. And thank you. We have the whole team here today. And I am Rob. And I'll start my tweet by saying, you're all wrong, except Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I had a sense that was going to happen, but all right, all right. It must be a sad life to not be able to appreciate real art. So, <laughs> it must be tough. Yeah, yeah it must burn. be tough. Wait, so how many of those six million views of Yoko Ono screaming in the MoMA lobby are yours? <laughs> I'm not signing on to Yoko. How dare you? All right, let's give some background on the record, and then I'd love to just, because now we've already started with controversy, so I want to quickly get to at least a little a little clip of the music so listeners can understand, but I'm going to kind of set the scene here. So the Velvet Underground, I bet even if you haven't listened to them, you've heard of them. They are a band that has made some kind of wave in the, in the music industry. They're kind of a musician's musician band sort of thing. And <laughs> <laughs> clearly, musician's musician band? <laughs> 
<laughs> what I mean is that people. There, so, no, I'll clarify. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I meant is that people who have good taste reference them as being good. So, it, and worth <laughs> noting is that they're fronted by a guy called Lou Reed, who went on to also have a, a great solo career. So, the Velvet Underground, and they're also associated with Andy Warhol, the famous 20th century uh, pop artist, right? So, they're sort of well known, but I don't think super well understood or even necessarily well very extensively listened to. So this is why I was excited to kind of dive into this, because while I agree the music can be polarizing, I think it's it's quite interesting. Uh, the Velvet Underground eventually would put out four albums in, over the span of about four years with Lou Reed at the helm, and then they actually went on after Lou Reed left and released the fifth album, but it's often totally discounted by fans, including me. Sell out. Lou Reed then went on to a what, pretty what successful... What is that record called, just out of curiosity? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know off the top of my head because I haven't listened to it. Because like pretty much everyone left the band. And then Doug Yule, who was a late addition to the band, he's, he isn't even on the record we're about to talk about, continued on. Somehow he owned the name. I, I don't know all the details of that one. It's don't listen squeeze, to it. Definitely don't right? listen to that that's one. That's the one? It's squeeze. The, yeah, yeah, Squeeze. Yeah, yeah. kind of looks like they're giving the Empire State Building a handy on the cover. <laughs> it's probably bad, but I, I honestly can't say. Anyway, but if you don't know a specific... I'm you sure might we have... all agree Squeeze the Band is better than that record. Uh, totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> what I was going to say was that... Must be bad. It, it came up even at the end of last week's podcast where I believe it was Adam said, hey, what's, their, what's the Velvet Underground's biggest hit? I mean, they don't really have any hits, but you might know Lou Reed, the lead singer. He went on to a successful solo career and had the hit song Walk on the Wild Side. So I bet you've heard that one if you've been listening to rock radio and it's just worth mentioning you, you may have already gotten this sense but the velvet underground have kind of come to represent a sort of 60s hipster new york cool kind of aesthetic which means certainly they're easy to make fun of or look down upon but at the time they were they were definitely edgy and, and pioneers i think musically and lyrically i'll argue that point today at this point in their career it's worth mentioning they were mostly known as a pet project of andy warhol who kind of, the band existed before Andy Warhol got a hold of them. But Andy Warhol sort of discovered them, championed them, semi-managed them. He's credited as the producer on this record, even though, according to the band and Andy Warhol himself, he knew nothing about music or music production. He was sort of just there to no. encourage them to do what they wanted to do. Just keep painting uh, Campbell Soup labels. <laughs> exactly. And, and in general, if you don't know, right, Andy Warhol was clearly a large cultural figure, perhaps also polarizing, you could say, but someone who wanted or was interested in mixing pop culture with the avant-garde art world. And I think this is a, that's a pretty decent description of what this record is as a whole. So you can sort of see how Andy Warhol's aesthetic lined up with really Lou Reed's aesthetic. Lou Reed is the primary, the only, really, songwriter and lead singer, right? And Lou Reed, I think, came to it with this vision of writing about, quote-unquote, real life in a way that hadn't been done before in pop music, meaning the gritty sort of underbelly of New York. In some ways, I think you have to understand this record. This came out in 1967. This is sort of the antidote to the Western 60s optimism, bright, airy, the zombies. Obviously, they're from Britain, but let's say the Beach Boys, things like that. It was a real, real change from that. Rob, I'm glad you brought that up because I think there's also sort of another layer to that onion, that sort of East first West pop culture onion that you just described. I actually didn't even think about the Beach Boys and sort of like the mainstream pop thing. I read a graphic novel about the forming of the Grateful Dead about a year ago, and it, it talked a lot about like the, the band's early years, probably like 65, like pre-dead, like Warlocks until maybe like 70 post-Woodstock. 
And it talked a lot about how the dead formed their first gig as the Grateful Dead was in December 65. Although Jerry and Phil Lesh had been in the Warlocks previously, that was at one of these Ken Kesey acid tests. And the dead went on to play a bunch of those acid tests. And it really had started to feel, and the, this, this graphic novel highlighted this, that it had started to feel like the dead weren't really their own band. Like they were Ken Kesey's pet project. They were the soundtrack or the DJ of these acid tests. And it's sort of was like a fisher in the band and it, it sort of drove them to do other stuff. I do think there is a real thread here between Ken Kesey and sort of like the pop culture impact he's having, 65, 66, and, and, and the dead maybe being seen as like an extension of what he's doing, right? At least, at least in like the art scene, right? Because this yeah. isn't mainstream, right? And maybe Andy Warhol thinking, like, I need a band. I need a band. That's yeah. a great idea. Just <laughs> totally. do a band. You know? <laughs> right. yeah, I, was, yeah. I don't picture it as East Coast versus West Coast. It's like heroin versus LSD. <laughs> Two sort of, like, influencing <laughs> factors, right? The battle lines have been drawn. <laughs> and then and I think took it, over the uh, soft middle. <laughs> the soft <laughs> middle of meth. Yeah. I think that's probably an accurate appraisal of how Andy Warhol got involved in this yeah it was it was a flight of fancy for a guy like andy warhol but let's just quickly let's set the scene i want to play a clip and then i want to keep talking so imagine this it's march of 1967 that's two months before the summer of love right the summer of love is just around the corner the biggest hit in the country is a song called love is here and now you're gone by the supremes it's a lovely little pop song the beatles penny lane also on the radio bright bouncy it's sunny optimism abounds but you're in new york and you see your friend on the street he pulls you into his apartment he says you have to hear this and he puts the needle down on venus and furs from the velvet underground and nico I want to get into this track a little later on as well, a little deeper. But to me, this is a good sense of what the record is trying to achieve. It is so dark. It is so weird. It is so the antithesis of what I think we tend to commonly or summarily or synopsize as the 60s. That that's it must have been shocking, I guess, is the point of my story. Right. And they were going for shocking. And they were going for polarizing. So anything you're going to say about them being, you know, like that's, this definitely was intentional. You can, I'm of the opinion, right? And maybe we can debate this momentarily and then I'd love to hear your first impressions. But I'm of the opinion that a band, the worst thing a band can do is not create any reaction in the listener. Apathy is the worst thing you can do. <laughs> and I do not think you could possibly argue that this band creates an apathetic response in the listener. I think it's challenging pretty much right from the jump, certainly on a track like that. So I'd love to hear your first impressions of the record. You can explain yourself a little further. I'll kick it to Tom. Well, you know, just to um, talk about one of the points that you brought up, I would agree that this record is challenging. It uh, challenges me to slough off some of my historic underpinnings of like, 
what I think good is, what I think tasteful is, I think interesting is. But I don't necessarily think that challenging equals good. You know, this album had some really bright spots on it that I liked. and But those bright spots tended to be short and they tended to be underdeveloped. And I could tell that this was an album made by heroin addicts, not just because they talked about it, but because, like, it seems like there wasn't a lot of follow-through on some of the things that I would have liked there to have been follow-through on uh, to maybe develop some of these ideas a little bit more. I feel like, you know, you're talking about them being this sort of, like, new sound. But I heard a lot of other bands in the sound in these songs. Like, this song, Venus and Furs... I got a real serious The Doors vibe out of this. And I hate The Doors. Just throw that out there. But like this sounded like a version of The Doors if they all sucked at their instruments, basically. And my first note on this particular song, and I feel like this can kind of carry through to like a lot of the songs on the album, is like I was trying to picture in my head how the conversation... Because I listened to it before I looked up, like, members in the band and everything like that. And I was like, oh, was there some conversation where Lou Reed, like, went to his heroin dealer and was like, I don't have enough money to pay you, but how about instead I let you play violin on the Velvet Underground (laughs) album? And he's like, I've never touched a violin before. And he's like, never you mind. It's all good. We'll make it work. I feel like I had a really hard time getting over what I found to be sort of like the lazy nihilism that they brought to the table, which I thought was underdeveloped. I've got no problem with nihilism, but this seemed to be lazy nihilism. <laughs> At least it's an ethos. We believe in nothing, Lebowski. <laughs> I want to hear what Adam thinks, but I just want to say that I couldn't disagree more with the aspect of it not being well thought out. I think it's extremely developed. I think they're just going for something you hate, and you describe some of those things, and that's valid. But... There, it's definitely de- it's developed. It's it's purposeful. I, I, I don't. It. I cannot agree with that in any way, shape, or form. That to, this to, is purposeful. <laughs> to co-defend with you, Rob, the Doors sixty-five to sixty-six, like the first Doors record, Strange Days, came out in August of sixty-six. So even if this was influenced by the Doors, it's influenced in this way where Andy Warhol is aware of the L.A. underground and he's somehow funneling these ideas into the studio and when was this recorded rob like march of 66 it was released in march of 67 i don't personally think it sounds like the doors we, we can dive a little deeper into that yeah but I mean, tom's highlighting this one song I'm yeah, just, yeah you know just yeah. adam what do you think so i actually had a hard time getting through it twice in general i like to listen to these albums at least four times in the week leading up to this discussion and uh, this is the first album where i was not able to listen to it through its it, in its entirety I made it through once and then the other times I had to stop halfway through and I went and I looked for other albums that were released in 67. Just, I needed a a palate cleanser. So you guys know my feelings of, I guess, tuning. (laughs) It's been discussed. Yes. But it, in the we same some kind way of tuning like, freak, things need to be in tune. <laughs> so we, we talked, one of our complaints about MIA, at least my complaint with that MIA album is that in interviews, she was like, oh, well, you know, I'm so hindered by the Western scales that I had to go explore the rest of the, and you listen to her catalog and it's not like she's explored music period, but she was, she was being held back by traditional notions of tone and everything. And this album comes off as... I think I have a tendency to agree with Tom, which is it's bad 
and they just sold it like, oh, it was intentional, man. We're artists. It just it had this kind of highfalutin, pretentious vibe to it. In the same way, I like referencing all these prior episodes we've done. Uh, the Prodigy, right? Hey, man, we're freaking out the squares. You can't handle this. I feel like this is the 1967 version of that. Like, oh, you like rockabilly? You like tunes? We're gonna we're gonna spin it on its head because we're cool. It just had plus one on that sentiment, Adam. Definitely like very like I'm trying to freak out the squares vibe going on. But also, so that was and mine. like derivative of like the Allen Ginsberg beat freaking out the square stuff that happened a decade earlier as well. So it's not, I, I didn't even find it to be like super original of freaking out the square style. So coming in, having never heard this before, that's my one minute, although probably two minute summary. <laughs> but I am, I am seriously open, Rob and Phil, I do want to hear your arguments because I do, I can be closed minded. I mentioned I'm a curmudgeon. I just want to point out that your father once told me how much Sgt. Peppers, which came out in 1967, freaked him out the first time he heard it. Like it blew his mind, like in a bad way. Like he was disappointed. He was so confused <laughs> by it. And I also think that's on the heels of Revolver. Like Revolver's the Beatles' acid record. And I think other than having a functional drummer, which like I'm happy to throw some elements of this record under the bus. Sure. I think the biggest difference is that you know Ringo is underrated and this drummer is barely <laughs> functional barely a drummer Present. barely, barely a, drummer. a drummer sure yeah. let's hear from Alan I had a hard time with this album because I thought I liked Velvet Underground and I think Rob you may have been sort of responsible for this I don't know their whole discog- discography but I remember you sort of brought that album loaded around a lot back in college and at least as far as I remember that it had a lot more I guess, like, song integrity. Like, it just felt like it had True. songs that sounded good and that had a good melody and, you know, not not to boil songs down into It had that. songs that sounded good. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it that's their last record, and it, it is much more of a pop record. N- no doubt about it, yeah. Right. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of bands change, obviously, like that. So I think I was expecting more of that because I had never heard this album before. And I don't want to discount their contributions. Phil, I think you you made a point about them being the kind of godfathers of, of indie rock, and I can definitely see that. But in and of itself, it was a really tough listen. I think it had a few moments, but... I had a hard time getting through it as well. I just thought, look, a bad guitar solo, yeah, I know what wanking around on a guitar sounds like, and I know when I hear it in a song, and that's fucking what they were doing for a lot of this. And to me, that's just pretentious nonsense. But I also do not want to just shit on it because I recognize the contribution they are making to a lot of music you know, to follow after it. So I've got my issues with it. But I respect what they were trying to do with experimentation and all that. To me, I want to throw it to Phil next. But to me, the problem with that state, I agree that guitar solos are terrible, right? And the solo, like, it's not a solo record. I think you could make an easy argument that it's very anti-solo. So it's funny to me that you would even focus in on that aspect of it, which says something about the frame that you're coming from, which I get it. A lot of the records we like have guitar solos on them, and that's a common thing we speak about, right? This clearly is coming from a completely different direction on all angles. So while I'm totally willing to throw those guitar solos under the bus and talk about how they probably just kicked holes in their speakers half the time and how the drummer is just using one mallet on a floor tom half the time or whatever it is it has something to do with intention i that's that's the well, crux that's of my fine. point no and i hear what you're saying about that and i should be clear like I, I don't mean that i need a traditional guitar solo in every song that's not what i'm saying i and and some of what i'm referring to i don't even think are necessarily solos quote unquote 
But, you know, it doesn't matter if you... <laughs> if, if it doesn't sound good, I, I don't... Anyway, we, we can discuss this later on. It All could right, be let's... as intentional as you want, but if it sounds like shit, like... <laughs> I, I, I got just... to jump in here on the intentional part, because, like, yeah. I feel like what you're trying to pitch to me is that, like, they could have done something different than this. There's no way that drummer was like, put me behind a kit, I'll kick the purdy shuffle on this, you know? Right. That was the, that was the extent of her ability, right? And if you're telling me that it just happened to be this, like, divine, like, confluence of all these people and their very limited skill sets just happened to align in a way that made this, like, amazing avant-garde album, maybe I can buy that, but I can't buy that, like, no, I could have done something that had more technical skill or stayed more on the beat or stayed more in tune or stayed more in key and i chose not to i cannot buy that because i don't think that they chose not to do something that was more proficient i think that's the level of their proficiency totally disagree but i want to hear from phil so oh man this is so i had basically the exact opposite experience that alan just described I have not listened to this record in years. I sort of forgot what tunes were on it. And it felt so refreshing to me. And so oddly, I'm going to dare say the word positive. <laughs> uh, there's something, I think, like not optimistic, but like new beginnings. There's something odd about it. Now, the song Venus in Furs in particular while not one, not, uh, while not my favorite song on the record, I really don't know what I would say my favorite is. I, you know, I'd say like "Waiting for My Man" or "Waiting for the Man" is just like it's a song, so it's easy. To, anyway, I feel like there's something about this song. Like, yes, this is the song. This is the song that, like, if I was making a movie about Vietnam or you know the '60s, like this would be the song that, like, the dude who doesn't know he's gonna smoke hash, right? Like. <laughs> He's like, he doesn't know he smoked hash, but now all of a sudden he's real fucked up, you know? I would watch like, the hell totally, out of that movie. <laughs> it's definitely got Opium Den vibes. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, exactly. Opium Den vibes. So, yeah, I, I think both this song and this record, like, don't get me wrong. It has a profound somberness and sort of like a droneness. I understand how that's a turnoff for a lot of people. I really struggle like uh, full disclosure for a very long time i thought nico was the drummer like i thought she was the singer and the drummer i thought that was the only way to explain both her presence on the vocals and the terribleness of the drummer that they were the same person <laughs> so you know and i i think this song is like a you know another reminder of like i don't i don't really understand the drummer maureen tucker's Role for lack of a better word, but yeah, man, I think it's cool. I think it's really hip. I don't know. I can't deny that. Like there are out of tune notes and out of tune guitars and out of time drums, which are often hard panned right. Why the fuck would you do that? I don't know. But there's something about it that I find, like I feel like you sense Warhol's presence. Like say what you will about Andy Warhol, the guy is like one of the most influential and celebrated and disputed artists of the last 40 or 50 years, right? And I think you hear the influence of a talented creator at the helm. And I know that that sounds crazy. And I know that, but like, I just, I don't think it's a mistake that Andy Warhol paid 25,000 of his own dollars to make this record. 
right? Uh, agreed. Uh, and I think you sense the influence of like a super creator like that. Uh, well, I th- I attributed more of that to Lou Reed. So I'll jump in and give my my background. But I do think Andy Warhol played a very important role at the very least, which was that they were gravitating around the scene of what was going on with Andy Warhol in New York. He had that fact, the factory and the exploding plastic inevitable and people would party and hang out there. And there's just a lot of different things going on. And I think Lou Reed wrote several songs about, you know, characters in that milieu. But I just believe that Lou Reed is an extremely talented songwriter and it's on showcase here. My history with the record, I, I feel very similar to Phil, which is, to be fair, nostalgia is probably coming into play because I heard this record when I was 15-ish and was really into it. I had someone really close to me in my life who was a heroin addict, is. I guess you never stopped being one, perhaps. And so maybe some of my feelings are wrapped up in that. He was really into it, too, unsurprisingly. Maybe even before he went that path, and but certainly after. But And it had been a very long time since I had listened to it. Again, my impressions on re-listening now, low these almost 20 years later, is it is so raw and real. And it did take me back to my childhood of realizing there were a few records like this that not only represented such a major break from my parents' music, A, and B, were so weird and experimental and freakish that they really helped me show that there weren't any meaningful rules around music at all. And that really, really excited me, even though I did not understand uh, most of it. So I think the record still has a lot of modernity to it. It's lo-fi, obviously, is very strange and challenging. It doesn't really make me think of other subsequent bands that much. I just don't agree with the Doors comparison. I mean, the, maybe the darkness aspect, but not the singing or the bass or the keyboards, which I think of as the hallmark of the Doors. I'll say, too, that like I think what Lou Reed is really good at, that at least affected me very strongly and then re-affected me on this re-listen, is this very voyeuristic kind of literary sketches of the underbelly of life. I seriously don't think I've seen that in any other place. And I think that's a through line in all his his work. Voyeuristic is a really good word. I, like, I wanted to say, like, uh, it has, like, a photojournalistic vibe almost at times. Like, for me, it feels like I'm seeing it often. I'm going to put you on the spot here. What's the song about? The Venus and Furs. What's it about? I think it's about going to some kind of Marrakesh opium den and you know there's middle eastern menace and there's it's like an s&m parlor and someone's domin some dominatrix is lording over someone it's just it's just dark i'm not saying this is the this is particularly the best right, now, I'm in, now i'm in you sold me well the reason the reason <laughs> right. that i the reason i compare it to the doors is because it has first of all it has that kind of like uh the end style kind of like weird ethereal vibe to it but also it's the lyrics and they are all sizzle no substance to me and, and Frank, like no substance at all. It's a bunch of like weird sort of impressionistic type of statements about it's difficult to follow. There's no narrative thread. There's just no meat to it. I'm sorry. I like I, 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 I read the lyrics. I many was times. not calling no meat. <laughs> you're you're going you're taking me wrong, though. I was not referring to this specific song. I don't think this is a great example of Lou Reed's songwriting. I think this is a great example of what the band itself is trying to achieve with its darkness and sort of mirror image of the West Coast optimism thing. That is my opinion. And we can talk more about this song. I think the best so- written songs on the record are songs like Waiting for the Man, uh, Heroin, Definitely, I'll Be Your Mirror. I think all these showcase Lou Reed's songwriting much better. So I'm not necessarily repping these lyrics specifically, but I do think they're extremely strange. And it gives 
even on re-listening, I'm like, as a listener, I'm like, holy shit, what is this? I feel like I'm a part of some occult ritual. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what taste the whip means. I just, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it really, I, I, think, I still I find think it, it affecting. doesn't mean anything. And that's where I come in. I just like, it doesn't mean anything. I like some of the other songs you talked about that have like zero subtext. I'm waiting to buy heroin. I love heroin. <laughs> those songs are like, those subtext, I get it. I know exactly what you're talking about. And that is a raw trip down like realism. But the rest of the stuff just seems like a lot of, I'm trying to freak you out with a bunch of like random. Well, here's where I'll kind of interject slightly where I, I think I kind of agree with both of you where like, they don't mean anything to me, a lot of the lyrics, but I definitely sure as hell think they mean something to Lou Reed. It, it, they may have been written in in periods of like being totally strung out and, and all that shit, but I don't think that they're just like random bullshit. I just they they don't really land with me personally. I don't know when you when you hear stuff about like uh, he wrote the lyrics on like the back of an envelope in fifteen minutes on the way to a show. It makes me think again. It's that sort of like uh, no, I don't know. Uh, it, yeah, I'll, I'll, every every songwriter has done stuff like that. Like Bob Dylan, I'm sure has a hundred Cheers like theme that. songs written in the back of a cab. That doesn't mean it's not meaningful. Do you think that my problem with it is undeve- is underdeveloped? <laughs> Again, like I feel like you can write, you can dash stuff off on the back of an envelope and be like, this is a really good idea. And I think this is an album of good ideas that were underdeveloped. So I'll give you a little bit of background on Lou Reed, which I think adds some context and then you can take it in the direction you want. So when he was a kid, he actually expressed some homosexual or deviant sexual tendencies, deviant at the time. And was given electroshock therapy. And this, he was really mad at his parents for his entire life about subjecting him to that. I have one of my notes is make a toastless joke about electroshock therapy at some point during this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. I didn't quite get there yet. <laughs> he is definitely a crusty customer. There is absolutely no doubt about it. I have a quote from one early bandmate that says, you don't hit it off with Lou. You find commonality and then you deal with his bullshit. But <laughs> I did want to mention this, that I, I thought this was kind of interesting, that before the Velvet Underground, right, he went to college and then when he, he came back to New York and he worked as a songwriter in kind of a knockoff brill building type place and the whole deal what they were trying to do there or i guess a lot of what these songwriting shops were trying to do was they were just trying to quickly capitalize on the latest trend and write songs and record them and try to sell them to unsuspecting teenagers so he was in these like writers rooms where they'd be like write write us 10 california songs you know write us 10 so you mean it was social media <laughs> basically yes write us 10 surfing songs and they'd like turn them out and then he'd be part of the band that would record them as well and this company would then make up a fake band name to kind of trick kids into thinking it was a more established band and get them on the shelves like within a couple weeks and try to sell. And so this will lead to something that was relevant to this record. But one of the things they did was they asked him to write a bunch of dance craze songs because the twist was really popular. And you can imagine Lou Reed and his personality. He both had experience with this and sort of liked the challenge, but he was always trying to, to goof on them. In fact, I think at one point he said he even pitched them heroin. Uh, to release to the kids and they're like yeah no that's not happening but anyway (laughs) they asked him to write dance craze songs he wrote a song called the ostrich and it was it's just like a totally ridiculous song you can hear i'll put it on the spotify playlist they released it under the band the primitives he's definitely like making fun of dance craze songs but it was actually a modest hit and this is part of what encouraged him to kind of keep a band together to go play it and write more songs the other thing that's of note there is that He took, I don't think he came up with this idea, right? But he took an idea for that song, which he then used in the Velvet Underground a lot, 
and which is to tune all the guitar strings to one single note. And he called it the ostrich tuning because of the song, right? And that's used on songs like Venus's First. That's where you get a lot of this droney sound. And that's one of the reasons I say it's extremely purposeful. So he had a little tiny, tiny, tiny taste of success writing for this songwriter shop and had this band called The Primitives that wasn't even a real band, but had this single on the shelves that sold a couple copies. And that caused him to go, hey, I should just, I should just continue this. Then he hooks up the other main player, I think, in the Velvet Underground that's not Andy Warhol, is this guy John Cale. This guy's from Wales. He's a classically trained violist. It's not a violin, it's a viola. He's classically trained! Yes. He came to the U.S. on a Leonard Bernstein scholarship in modern composition. <laughs> he cannot play the viola. It sounds he absolutely so bad. can. You, this is how, but you're just wrong, obviously, right? He's into. No, it's not obvious. I'm no, sorry. No, it is obvious. It's obvious by the words I'm saying. <laughs> Best episode yet. So he, co- Rob, he comes you, to New York. You just had the conversation like I've had with my kids. Well, it's true because of the words I'm speaking. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then can't argue with that. I feel like this is like yeah, an MMA fight where the dudes start like they're about to fight before the actual fight happens. Right. This was the '60s. It, it was I mean, a weird time. Fair enough. Time. He purposely wanted to sound terrible. That's. That, I guess that's a. Uh, okay. Well, thing now we you agree. Do. <laughs> now we agree. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying he, uh, this is evidence that he is in fact trained as a player, right? So it's it is definitely intentional. But he was really into the avant-garde scene. He was working with a composer. This was the '60s. He was in something called the Theater of the Eternal. It was one of these weird things. And they actually, I thought this was a fun anecdote, which we can make fun of, which is initially when they wanted to get the band together, they recruited another guy from that avant-garde theater or whatever to play drums for him. But the, the guy quit in a huff as soon as they got a paying gig at a New Jersey high school, claiming the band had sold out. <laughs> <laughs> the first paying gig. At a high school. Yeah. So listen, are these guys pretentious? Yes, I'm not denying that. But did they make something great? Yes, they did. You know what my problem is? is that I am not, like, I've, I think I've said it before, like, I'm not super cool. cool or, like, <laughs> s- <laughs> good, Thank you, Phil. Uh, artistic. Everybody wants to be in on the thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. when I hear this, and I don't get it. Like, Phil, you said last week about Iron Maiden, like, I don't get it. I'm like, well, it's a metal band. How can you not get that? But you get this. Sure. So it, like, it, it, <laughs> sure. Like I'm on the, I feel like I'm on the out group where I'm like, well, but I'm cool. So I should get this. Like I'm smart. I should get this. I know music. I should get this. And I don't friggin' get this. So it's, it's like this internal struggle going on. So I don't know. Well, I was going to, I equate this to like reading like a long Russian novel. People are like, oh, I absolutely love to read like The Idiot or like Anna Karenina. And I'm like, you like having read it. I don't think you actually like the experience of reading it. I think you like being the type of person that says that you like Dostoevsky as opposed to actually reading Dostoevsky. Right. Oh, I'm in the group now that likes the Velvet Underground. I know that cool people like the Velvet Underground. That's where my head goes. Tom, that... Tom, that's a great comparison because the list of classic books that I've abandoned between 60 and 200 pages Hold on a second. is more 60. than the list I've finished. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. Let me stop the train, please. I agree that it's a good thing to bring up because clearly that phenomenon exists, the one that Tom described. I totally agree. That phenomenon exists. And I'll, I'll speak. Per- I'm a voracious reader myself, 
And I'll speak personally, I read War and Peace. It was not enjoyable, but I am, in fact, happy I read it. Yet, I also think and believe there are people who enjoy Russian literature. I don't, I don't buy that. Like, that's the only reason Russian literature no, no, is a thing. It's not the only reason that Russian <laughs> literature is a thing. I would just say that, like, most people who tell you that, like, I read The Brothers Karamazov, they didn't actually enjoy reading it, but they want to tell you that they read it. And that's, that's the main motivation to read it. Can we find... But let's that's talk a long about book for, there, for spite reading. That's just... Uh, <laughs> yeah, there, there, more spite than others. <laughs> there is lots of challenging art out there. And some of it I genuinely like. Russian literature doesn't happen to be one of them for me personally, right? But I, I don't. I just think that's a little too binary. I, I agree the phenomenon exists, though. So uh, that's not why I like the Velvet Underground. I assure you. Okay, so this is gonna blow your mind. The bulk of the record was recorded in one eight-hour session. No. <laughs> right. With with a fifth grader at so, the uh, at the yeah, control in a, board in a nearly <laughs> condemned studio, which later housed Studio Fifty Four. So how many times do you think they? How many times do you think they fixed during that eight-hour session? <laughs> like, if you can track it chronologically, like starting to fall off here, and then all of a sudden they're pretty fucking mellow for the rest of these songs here. Like, <laughs> so I actually, was, I was, so not that that changes my mind a ton, but it, it's starting to come together a little bit for me as far as hey, this was just meant to be this thing we did in one day. I don't know if that part was intentional as, as much as the composition of the songs, but it almost gives it like a disposable kind of feel to me in that way, you know, for better or worse. So the band was frustrated with Andy Warhol, right? Kind of right from the start, which meaning like Lou Reed understood that by Andy Warhol taking an interest in them, he could benefit from that. Obviously, that was a springboard for their career. So he accepted it. But Andy Warhol immediately started coming in and making unilateral changes that Lou Reed did not like. For instance, he was like, yeah, you guys are good, but I think you should be fronted by a German model instead who doesn't write songs <laughs> and just unilaterally decides Nico should be the lead singer. And then Lou Reed is like, OK, I'll accept that. But Count of Monte Cristo style, he's like, how can I edge her out and not let her sing very many songs and only give her the, the songs I don't like or, you know, whatever it is. How did, right? he, how did he worm his way into such decision making like i'm thinking like Littlefinger from game of thrones some guy that just like works his way in and then all of a sudden he's calling and the shots paid for everything he was just like i will pay for you to exist right my yeah, he would have yeah, been mega uh, famous that's fair he was mega famous <laughs> and i think they they really kind of cut their teeth playing at the parties that andy warhol would throw but my understanding i didn't get a ton a ton about this but my understanding is that andy warhol's interest really dropped off pretty quickly especially as it came to this recording so you talk about funding them he was more he was more having their name associated with them got them some press got them some interest got people to come to their shows got them other gigs by the time the recording actually came around it sounded like Andy Warhol kind of lost interest. Like, yeah, I'm kind of over this band thing. I'm ostensibly the producer, but I don't really care. I'm more like a movie producer. I kind of pulled it together. You guys should just go for it. I am making the cover, which is was a pretty big deal at the time. And it is, I think, a really cool cover with a banana. With it, in, in the initial print was a sticker that when you peel off the banana sticker, you get a very phallic-looking banana inside. Can we just talk for a second about the fact that the debut album of this band, the cover just says Andy Warhol? The most prominent thing you see is says Andy Warhol. <laughs> really fair point. It's pretty. <laughs> like, how much of a dick is Andy Warhol? That, like, he can't very, even... Like, it should very be printed much so, in yes. block leathers yeah. on the top. The That's what should Nike do. And then the signature there. Listen, if the argument is, are all these guys dicks, then yes, they definitely are. I do not want to hang out and have a beer with any of these people. <laughs> at all. Fair. <laughs> But that's different. That's a different question, right? Rob, it seemed to me like in, in doing some of the mild research that like, and mine was pretty superficial, but like it seemed like Warhol's 
I don't want to say production, but like his influence on the band was largely from like the participation on the scene. Right. So mm-hmm. I can easily imagine a scenario where like, you know, they record most of this in like April of 66 or whatever. I can imagine a scenario where Warhol's like, yeah, just set up and do your set, you know? Like there's the fucking like just do your set five times, you know. By the by the way, they recorded that on their 1968 live album, which I listened to half of it about. And if you want to find a record that is even lower fidelity <laughs> and even worse performance, go listen to the live performance of this album in 1968. It sounds like somebody put in a reel to reel in a shoebox in the back of a club. <laughs> And then they just did their shtick. Rob, Rob, why don't you feed us another song? Let's like okay. fire this up yeah, again. Yeah, I want to yeah. feed Tom and Adam and Alan. Like I have some stuff. All right, let's some, like let's, garbage. Let's dive. Can... <laughs> let's dive into what I think is one of the most exciting and fun and endearing songs on the record. I'm waiting for the man. Let's play a little clip of that. I'll start by saying that one of the things I really love about this song and this whole aesthetic is that it actually does not romanticize drug use. I think this is a big difference. I understand that I'm sure people listen to this and then got excited to shoot heroin. I'm, you know, I know there were stories of people listening to heroin, shooting heroin, but I like that Lou Reed is really grimy about not only how much he's wasting his life doing this thing. I feel sick and dirty, more dead than alive. And then additionally, about the everyday annoyance of always having to wait for your drug dealer. So to me, that's an example of Lou Reed doing something really fun. I think this is a great song. Tom? Yeah, this is a good song. When I listened to it, I was like, wait, it's not called I'm Waiting For My Man? This is one of those things that like... They're artists. It, uh... it takes me a little... It, it, you can't separate the like extraordinary amount of heroin use that they were doing at the time from some of these things that are maybe just a little bit like... The mistakes that a junkie would make, basically, of like, wait, what did I say on there? Uh, did I say the man or my man? Uh, I guess I said the man. If you're telling me that that was intentional, I don't understand why they would do that. But again, it's a, it's a song that like, it's a song. And I can, it's got structure. It's got parts. It, it is interesting. And again, zero subtext. <laughs> and I appreciate well, the fact that it's zero subtext. Like, to be is, fair, part-wise, it's from the Bob Dylan, no bridge necessary school of songwriting. Yeah, it's, for sure. it's A-B-A-B. But, yeah. you know, like, I, but it, it's a good A and it's a good B. Like, I'll, I'll you know, I, I totally buy that this is a, not a pop song, but it's, it's a song that has some depth is not the right word. But uh, maybe just, it's just got, it's got a flow to it. Like I, I can, I can follow it. I can, again, understand exactly what you're talking about, about the non-romanticization of drug use, which is like, I appreciate that because if it's just a, an opus to how great it is to be a heroin addict, then like, you know, I, I would think about it in a different way. I would think that it was a, uh, it more immature than I think that this is. It's, it's a little bit more mature to be talking about like the gritty reality of, of the life that they live. And I can appreciate that, definitely. Adam, you want to say something? 
It's got all the sensibilities of a group of 12-year-old boys who found their dad's recording equipment <laughs> and threw together some <laughs> shitty lyrics and then tried to play it. And I say that knowing because uh, Phil and I did that. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, you and I... Yeah. When you guys were all sh- I, shooting heroin when you were 12, yeah. <laughs> Phil and I wrote a song called The Arsonist Next to My Brother. Mm, in your we basement. I have, in, oh, yeah. Um, oh, man. Oh, I definitely yeah. have forgotten this. Keep going. We need to work yeah, like that, this, a clip of that into the episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Can we get that on the spot? Yeah. I mean, it was only a demo. That's actually going to be the master tape. <laughs> right. Do you have the master? <laughs> There's a cassette laying around. You got somewhere. the quarter inch somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was okay. I, I actually read the lyrics versus listening to the song. It got a little droney for me, so I went to the the lyric thing and just walked through. And yeah, it, it tells a story, right? He's going up to the apartment and he's waiting and, and all this stuff. So it was. <laughs> To Tom's point, it was a song with a start and an end and lyrics. Wow. I'm sorry. Drone man. is their aesthetic. Phil, you want yeah, to say something? I, I get it. Yeah, yeah, I, I get I, it. I, I, think, I think we've said enough about this song. But the one thing I, I would like to add is this, or, or, or uh, this is the song on the record where Maureen Tucker's performance bothers me the least. <laughs> really? Like, the least? The least. She's kind of doing this build. It almost feels like the band's just going to take off at any moment, but then they never do. I was cracking. On, on this one particular song, I can almost believe she's a real drunk. Wait, can we talk I was about cracking the piano? Up. <laughs> I, I was thinking of the uh, the like, the like sheet music for this, uh, for the drums, and it's just all eighth. It's snare hit for every eighth note. No, 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 no it's all. I think it's, it's, it's a snare floor, possibly bass. I think, I think it's just snare tip. Yeah, but the, the, the keyboard is doing the same thing as the drums. Like, someone's just sitting there like, ding, 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 ding. For like five minutes. Eighth notes, dude. Oh, again, though, that is that's definitely their aesthetic, but yeah. I agree, and it's and the fidelity is is laughable. I mean, on this one yeah. in particular, I, one, best I, drums I, on the record. I I have to call it out though for it was funny because someone mentioned what I what I got the Sublime song on the text string, but what that made me think of not not in reference to this song. I like some of Lou Reed's little interstitial vocal things, but on this one, it's a classic. He says, "Oh, work it now," and then nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right, it, no. it reminded me. It reminded you know what me of what happens. I got. It happens is what happens is a minute of outro that doesn't change. <laughs> that's what happens when he says, "No, oh, no, this, not, this is not the outro. That's, that, that's not the outro because something actually does change a little bit in the outro." But this is like a, a talking about the piano starts playing song. out of key notes. Yeah, <laughs> that's later though. I'm saying, I swear to, God, I'll drop it in right here. Okay, don't you right. test me. <laughs> Around around 150, he says, oh, work it now, and zero happens. And it reminded me of in Sublime when he says, I could play the guitar like a motherfucking riot. And then it's the most tepid <laughs> solo you've ever heard. It's on like an acoustic guitar. It's horrible. Like, by, the, by the way, how much, how hilarious would that song, What I Got, be if like Joe Satriani came in and just shredded <laughs> right, right. it for 30 seconds when he says nothing. I could play the And let, let's not ride. discount the fact that uh, what I got does have a little bit of wicka wicka wow in it. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Yeah, it yeah. Just, just, just miss that. Just for a nice like pop culture. This is in the spirit of Andy Warhol and to you know a palate cleanser for. I'll throw this bone to Adam. I saw a hilarious YouTube account yesterday called Metal Dad, and it's just this. <laughs> 
fat dude who sits in a reclined, like, reclining chair. Like, Please and tell me he just shreds. He shreds. He's like, yeah. the first the first one I saw was him ripping eruptions. Yeah. And he's like, he's probably, like, he's fat and old. And he's like drinking Pepsi from the can. He's in a recline. And his kids are like filming it. Like it's Wait, is he, is he European shreds. by any chance? I don't know. Because I, I found someone that resembles that guy on base who, the, the description you just gave, I've seen someone exactly like that. And he doesn't move. Like he just sits there stone-faced and shreds base. I wonder if he's the same guy. You talking no, about no, Frederico this... Malamon? Is that who it is? That, I mean, that's a big, fat European guy who shreds base. So it could be. Maybe yeah. we're. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all, right. all right, all right. Moving on. Let's let's move on to I'll be your mirror. I want I want to talk about I'll be your mirror next. Let's drop this in now. Pretty different vibe, as you can imagine. One of the things I think they're playing around with on this record that I like is a little bit of a contrast of kind of, and there's less of the light and beautiful part and the sort of intense and droney part. So this is, feels like a nice break. It's actually, in my opinion, the best Nico song on the record. Alan, what'd you think, buddy? Yeah, I thought this was actually a decent tune. The, my ver- very first thought was, if someone had played this and told me it was a Bell and Sebastian song... I wouldn't have thought twice. 100%. That was my note. Bell and Sebastian. Yeah. 100%. It was, yeah. So, obviously, they are influencing to this day, you know. So, a band you like sounds just like the Velvet (laughs) Underground. I wouldn't say that I necessarily, I think Bell and Sebastian's okay, but I'm talking just the vocals, right? You know, and some of the, the rhythm foundation, but... Yeah. Uh, Nico's vocals have been described as just like a cello getting up in the morning. Really? I described it as, it sounds like, I described it as it sounds like she's trying to balance a penny on her tongue while she sings the entire time. (laughs) I don't think she has a good voice. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was all right. Kind of like the, those really high harmonies they were throwing in at the very end. I thought that was kind of going for it in, in a nice way. So yeah, not, not too bad. Phil, you got something to say? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that this is the best Nico song. I hate Nico. I think she's terrible. Um, I think she is. A, 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 the sound of her voice to me sounds like just uh, like she's like a really. Like, basically, it's like you take Mama Cass, and then you take all of the goodness out of her. Just, like, all of it. Hey, you got to give her a head injury at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're left with this weird, like, shell. Femme Fatale is terrible. Actually, I, I don't know if it's terrible. Just like all tomorrow's parties. I can't get past this, like, I, I hate Nika. Yeah, she went on 
to be kicked out of the band. But she, I did, we mentioned she's she was very attractive, tall blonde woman. And in fact, uh, even Bob Dylan was enamored with her and gave her a song for her solo debut. And then Lou Reed, even after kicking out of the Velvet Underground, like wrote a bunch of the songs for her debut as well. So she clearly had some kind of physical presence that was uh, endearing people to her. There was a name for that. I think they called it a succubus on South Park. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, I mean, you know, what, what that's, more a, that's a rich tradition in music is like, just give the hot <laughs> chick songs and we'll make some money off of them. Right. So one of the cool anecdotes I heard that I wish they had done that came from Andy Warhol was that, but it doesn't sound like he really wanted to press the issue or follow it through, is that he originally really wanted there to be a permanent scratch in every record they printed in this song so that I'll Be Your Mirror would, at the end would just repeat endlessly until someone came and picked up the needle. And, uh, now that is art. <laughs> they vetoed that. <laughs> yeah. I think that was a that, good idea. Oh, that was a great that's idea. That's actually clever to me. That's actually like yeah that, okay like that I I think that's funny I think that's a cool idea yeah great as opposed to buying a tuner which is just totally lame <laughs> why would you tune your guitars correctly <laughs> squares they tune them correctly to all the note D <laughs> <laughs> for this song <laughs> no not this one no yeah. I'd like to go on record as saying I've never seen a picture of Nico and there is no image that could change my opinion of what that sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> okay fair enough fair enough okay i like the record we <laughs> all right i think we i think we covered venus and furs pretty thoroughly so let's give it its sister song and what i think of as the low point on the record and just to be clear there are a couple clunkers here for sure black angels death song let's play a little snippet of that The choice of his fate set themselves out upon a plate for him to choose. What had he to lose? Not a ghost bloody country all covered with sleep where the black angel did weep. Not an old city street and he's gone to choose. Brother walked on through the night with his hair and his face long along spent it cut from the knife. This is what I would politely refer to as avant-garde bullshit. <laughs> I call this shitty Bob Dylan in my notes. <laughs> I also find one of my one of my, my favorite credits on the album is that John Cale is credited with the hissing sound. Like and how did that conversation <laughs> go? Where it's like I listen, that was me hissing on this track. I gotta get the hissing sound in here. You know it's funny. There are two kinds of guys on records, right? They're the kind of guys that wanted to say Phil Matarese. And then the kind of guys that wanted to say Phil Matarese, guitar, 12 string guitar, acoustic guitar, organ, piano, harpsichord, like everything. Like, yeah. like, like nose picking. Broken sound. chair. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, dude, we can take it out of the budget. <laughs> yeah. I almost appreciate, well, well yes, I, I agree. This is, is somewhat of a low point. But I actually, amongst the other songs, I appreciate the avant-gardeness and to me this feels deliberate versus the others which just feel like poorly executed attempts at rock and roll like this one they kind of owned it the other ones just sound bad this this is the only one that feels like rob you know you're saying like yeah they they went for it and they were like this is going to be detuned and it's going to hurt your ears this one feels deliberate to me a lot of the other ones just feel like bad musicianship and they don't 
know their craft well. But what you're really, you're kind of, the analogy that that calls to mind, Adam, is going to a Korean taco place and going, this is neither good Korean food nor good Mexican food. It's like, yeah, it's fusion, dude. They're trying to ride a line. Uh, I would say at least Korean tacos taste good. <laughs> I don't think a lot of this stuff sounds How good. Did they t- this sounds great. Totally disagree again. Sounds amazing. I will definitely continue listening to this. But this song is indulgent without purpose. I don't listen. Here's here's my position is I don't like avant-garde music generally. And I think what this band is trying to do is loop it into pop music, even kind of like 60s traditional pop music or even 50s style songwriting in some cases with that with that layer of grit and heroin, obviously. Right. But here they go full avant-garde, weird noise, noise for noise, noise sake. The cello here just grates on me, whereas in something like Venus and Furs, yeah, it's a it's a clear, stabby, psycho thing that's meant to freak you freak you out. Maybe in other words, the freaking out squares criticism is a valid criticism, but I'll just say I was a square and I was freaked out. So it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Did anybody else have a real hard time? Choo choo choo, bachipa. All I kept thinking of was Ralph Wiggum's I choo choo choose you. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing that breakdown at the end. And like it immediately made me not be able to take not just this song, but like a lot of the other songs seriously. I know that's a weird, like, sort of like retroactive thing to put on him because clearly The Simpsons had not been created yet. But like, I don't know. It That was, you're right on the indulgent part. This yeah. was just like. Yeah, I think you can be. Throwaway. You can be experimental and avant garde, but it. And I'm not even going to go for, like, the it sounds bad bit. It it was, like, piercing. Like, there was a shrieking that I found, like, really offensive. Like, I was really having trouble just listening to it from, like, a true assault on the ears. Not just, like, it it offended me or, you know, assaulted my sensibilities, but... It it hurt my eardrums. They, listen, they, here's an anecdote about the song. You know, you've, I think we've all heard about comedians walking the room as sort of a purposeful thing, you know, as a, as a flex. And these, the Velvet Underground was not trying to make friends. So I heard this anecdote that they had a multi-night residency and they were, they were scraping by, right? Between drug addiction and buying new viola strings, right? They didn't really have a lot of cash laying around. So they had a multi-night residency at this place in Greenwich Village, and they played this song on, like, the first night. It was, like, a multi-set per night kind of thing. And they played this song in the in the first or second set, and the owner comes up and is like, if you play that song again, you're fired. And then they just, like, start the next set with it immediately, and they get kicked out of the, kicked out of the place. I can respect By that. the way, as a uh, as a, a clarification on the, uh, the viola stuff, John... Kale, he did not have viola strings on his viola. He put various other types of strings on there besides viola strings to get what he described as like an airplane taking off sound. And uh, I've been on airplanes before, and it's certainly a much less offensive sound than <laughs> he was going for. <laughs> okay. I think we're ready to move on to what I see as the highlight of the record. And to me, the song that is both the most polarizing and the most intense and lively, even to this day, in my opinion, which is the song Heroin. So we'll play a little clip of that, although I should say a clip really won't do the song justice. You really do have to go listen to all of it. I don't know just where I'm going. Try 
kingdom if I can Cause it makes me feel like I'm a man When I put a spike into my vein And I tell you things aren't quite the same When I'm rushing on my run And I feel just like Jesus' son Cool. I'll kick it to the group. What do you guys think about this song? Loved it. This is the only song that deserves to be a seven-minute song in this album, and it's by far the highlight of the album. This is a good song, and it's a good song because the subject matter matches the approach in a very appropriate way. And that like complete and total stripping away of any subtext is refreshing for an avant-garde project. Because I feel like so much avant-garde stuff is just bullshit, needless subtext. And this is like right there and you know, throwing it out to you that like I am talking about how much I love heroin. And uh, I appreciated that. I also had a really hard time listening to this song in front of my kids because I was just like, I can't, you just can't listen to this. This song talks about how awesome it feels to do heroin. Um, I can't have you listen. That that might be the one thing that sticks in your in memory. Fairly direct in like, detail. Yeah, and like yeah. It, like it's almost like a how to of like this is how you shoot heroin. Twenty years from now, they might be like, you know, like I have this memory from childhood about how great heroin is. That's why I checked that out. <laughs> I, to me, this is still some of the rawest shit I've ever heard in my life. This definitely hit me hard when I was a teenager. And it hit me hard again this week. I, I agree with everything you just said, Tom, but here the viola drone notes make it really unsettling and work within the context of what they're talking about. This whole totally idea of works a, here, yes. totally this like lamenting his whole life being wasted. So it's not exactly romanticizing it, but I understand plenty of people have shot heroin up to the song for the first time, and Lou Reed was really ex- ex- intensely bothered by that and stopped playing it for a couple decades because of that. But I kind of like feel like I'm in someone's therapy session. Like, I'm witnessing something I shouldn't witness when I listen to this it, song. It kind of reminded me of... You ever see that video with John Frusciante after he leaves the Chili Peppers the first Ooh, time? yeah. Where he is, like, strung in the moment, and he's trying to play songs and he sounds like shit and you can just see it's very like startling to see somebody in the throes of it like that i feel like this song is sort of a audio version of that or it you know in song form so yeah i do agree it definitely hits hits pretty hard that way um i definitely like the song i i thought it had a nice little journey even though i didn't notice like a ton of you know changes necessarily which doesn't seem to be their thing it does a tempo doesn't it do a tempo thing which i assumed was just like a crescendo representative, yeah right and then it came back down which yeah uh, that's again my assumption of the journey that the lyrics are describing but no yeah. chord changes yeah that's accurate yeah yeah right. definitely like a set piece kind of song though for the album i also i and think for it's... 1967 too i think that this is heavy for 1967. Oh, yeah. For sure. So, yeah. So, I will write a 66 was Pet Sounds. Wouldn't it be nice if we were older? Great you know, song. like, let's get married. Great song. You want to talk about contrast, though. So, yes, I will absolutely <laughs> give the heroin addict describing his, you know. Wouldn't it be nice if we Why? had heroin? <laughs> <laughs> Is that the Weird Al version? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So it's, it's, and also, I want to say it's similar to to what I like about albums like In the Airplane Over the Sea, which is to say that it's really raw to the point where it's uncomfortable and 
off tone at times and things like that. And it has to grow on you for sure, which is the same thing the Neutral Milk Hotel record did. But there's something about breaking through that barrier. And uh, I just want to say, too, maybe this is another spot to play a little section of it. But the It's My Wife, It's My Life, followed by that little laugh ad lib to me is like, it's just a perfect little, it's a perfect little section of the song. And it hits me every time he says that because it's, you know, it's so insanely true. my life <laughs> because a man to my vein leads to a center in my head and then I'm better off than dead yeah this song is like 40% of the reason why this album is good in my opinion if I'm going to listen to this album it's because I know that I'm going to hear this song at some point I also love that song Run 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 I think it's a great song I think that's uh, that's another one of the songs that like it probably shouldn't have been a five minute song and they maybe want to develop a little bit more it's A, B, A, B but like that's a good song this song all A still a great song I, it I think is it all really, A yeah I think it really brings it though so I I love this song, but I have a couple of notes here that I just think are interesting. Like these are just like the first run through notes that I have written down here. One of them is actually specifically for you, Adam. I'm going to imagine that you probably struggled a little bit with the out of tuneness of this song, especially considering there's only one chord. Mm-hmm. Especially, Go on. there's twice as many chords as that, Phil. Oh, sorry, sorry, my, my, my foolish. Yeah, yeah. It, it, this is this is one four all day. Right. Yeah. 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 You never. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so Alan, or excuse me, Adam. And I mean, I guess what it bothered you from like moment one because that intro guitar, it's like it's just like not quite there, right? So yep. I would like, I would like, <laughs> you're like, yes, yeah, that's correct. Accurate. Yes, that's, so, everything you're saying is correct. So, so Adam, I'd like you to go check out Aretha Franklin's Chain of Fool. And okay. just for the context that like, shit was out of tune all the time. All the time. Like our current sense of in tune that's based on, and time by the way, that's based on like a MIDI grid and like and auto tune not just auto tune but like real tuners followed by auto tune right like it's it's creating in my opinion like a, a very limited tolerance range for like the human ear right like if it isn't fucking dead on right like, well no i mean i i understand that yeah that yeah sure the natural deviations from sure. a440 that there there is there is a range of right course. that that and makes and what something I sound would, full and what versus would, sour. Sure, of course. And I would argue that I would argue that since the '80s, that range has been narrowing, and you hear it in a song like this or a song like Aretha Franklin's "Chain of Fools," where the guitar is just straight up out of tune, much worse than this song. Anyway, so let's keep going. All right, I'm gonna go dig that up. Go check that out. Actually, yes, actually, Rob, if you want, you know, you could just drop in like the intro to Chain of Fools right here. You don't even have to play the whole tune. I don't know if it's going to help uh, the argument, but okay.
Yeah. Or, or you could just edit out that that. that no, I'm just joking. That whole spiel. Okay. Put the fuck in. No, 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 no. I got more. I got more. This is the tune where I'm like, I can't tell if Maureen Tucker's drums on this song are genius or the worst song uh, or the worst performance on the record. Right. Because the tension mm. created by her playing at a different time than the band yeah. is intense. She's bad. Uh, I, I think it, it works. So no, but, I, it, but it works. It does it work. It works on this song. I, I don't buy that it was intentional that it worked. I don't buy that. I agree. Yes, behind totally. that. She seems like a terrible drummer. No, yes. so th- listen to this anecdote to, that supports that theory, which is that she actually just stopped drumming unplanned for several seconds around like f- the five minute mark because she couldn't hear anyone. She couldn't hear herself anymore and she wasn't sure what was going on. And then no one even noticed she stopped playing. So she started playing again. <laughs> oh, man, you're not really making the case here, Rob. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like uh, Buster in uh, you know, Arrested Development. He's just beating on the tom-tom. <laughs> yeah. This... <laughs> This song is not about musicianship or drummers. Right. It's not. Right, it's just not about right. those things. So it doesn't. Right. I think it works, and it doesn't bother me at all. No. Well, here's here's what I would say, Rob. You're sort of making the pitch that this album is not about musicianship, and like I can forgive it on this song because I think this is a good song. I can't forgive it on a lot of the other songs that I think are just like a step or three below this song. Because like if you're gonna be coming to me with like. I don't really need to be in tune. I don't really need to be in time. I don't really need to be on pitch. I don't really need to have a good recording fidelity. You got to be bringing some good content to the table. And I would say that for a lot of the songs, I don't think the content's that good. And so, like, this is the one where, like, yes, it has stepped above the content and the execution are perfectly in harmony. And I buy it. And this is really good. Like, I would say this is a really good song. I don't buy it for a lot of the other songs on the album. Fair enough. So I think we're in kind of wrap it up mode. Does anyone want to say anything else before we kind of move on? I would just say that uh, they're terrible at writing endings. And maybe that's not their thing. <laughs> I can but buy like, that. The songs do not have, most of the songs have either no ending or a terrible ending. Tom, it's intentional. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Listen, like all, like any great love, I love it for its flaws, not in spite of them. So. I do like it. I think I think it's safe to say that in a lot of ways that we all described here and acknowledged, it is a train wreck. But to me, it's a kind of a gnarly, beautiful, can't look away kind of train wreck that is, in my mind, clearly very, very influential. You know, one of the, one of the quotes I heard was something along the lines of the context of like before VU, as, as they're known by their friends, there really wasn't any such thing as like an underground or alternative rock. Obviously, they have underground in their name. You either had a radio hit or you did not. This was an example of a band that, yeah, they had the Andy Warhol thing. They did not sell a lot of records. They sold about 30,000 to 50,000 records over the, over the first like five years. And it said, which means it was not a great success. And they, they kind of soldiered on, but became this very influential band. And it said that basically everyone who bought one of those first 30,000 went out and started a band. And so I think you do see those influences in a lot of bands throughout the 70s and 80s. The kind mm-hmm. of edgy minimalism of like a Talking Heads, for instance, I certainly was listening to a band like this. You know, a lot of, a lot of that punk aesthetic, the nervous energy, the writing about those kinds of topics, and all the way through to bands like Bell and Sebastian, which I hadn't thought of before, but since you mentioned it, I love that comparison. So I guess I'm going to kick it to the group. The Velvet Underground and Nico, is this a record you must hear before you die? Tommy. 
So I am going to relatively conflicted, but I'm going to give this a no. I think that there are three songs in this album that you should hear. I think you should hear Waiting for the Man. I think you should hear Run, Run, Run. I think you should hear Heroin. But I don't think you need to listen to the whole album because I do think that most of the rest of the album doesn't rise to the occasion. And so it's a no, it's a somewhat qualified no for me. Listen to Velvet Underground's greatest hits, if that's a thing that exists. They don't seem like the kind of band that would do that, but <laughs> I don't think so, but maybe. So, <laughs> yeah. Adam, kicking it to you. Why would you want people to listen to your music, man? <laughs> Rob, you made a lot of great points. I still, it's a bad spot to harbor resentment against an album for what it put you through, but I understand <laughs> in the same vein. It gave me a feeling, right? It gave me um, a reaction. It did something to my soul, whether that's recoiling or falling in love with it. However, I am going to say no on this one. To echo some of Tom's points, I think there are a couple tunes that are worth listening to. The rest, uh, it just just didn't do it for me. Cool. We're gonna kick it to Alan. I love how guilty I feel. By the way, exactly. <laughs> well, like looking at looking at Rob's face, I'm like, oh, he's an artist, and I'm not. Yeah, I just feel bad for you. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's certainly not a pretentious position to take. <laughs> well, it's you know we ha- Wait, we've changed we have we've quite vacillated on our approach to answering this question because I was understanding it as if you're supposed to hear if you're planning on hearing any of these tracks, you must listen. But now it seems like we're kind of changing that week to week. So that, just for the record, that's how I've been answering the question with consistency. And you guys kind of went against that. It's okay. I'm well, just saying. That. You're, well, you're saying if there's one good track on the album, you have to listen to the album. If there's I'm one saying, track, I don't, think the ju- I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze. Personally, uh, I just want to be clear that if you're saying one track is a must hear, to me that means the album is a must hear because in this universe, just the one I'm picturing now. You will never hear it unless you hear this album. I got to go back and listen to all my nose. <laughs> no, it's it's and, okay. Uh, I, don't, I really don't. <laughs> I don't, I don't care. My nose. It's not. A, I it's not affecting consistent. my relationship with the album. Alan, please. <laughs> so, okay. I know I spent a lot of time really shitting on this album. I did not find it to be the most enjoyable listen. I think my criticisms have been well established. That said, I do think it belongs on the list. I think anything that look. Does it inspire me, you know, to make music? Not necessarily, but because it influenced so many bands, because it was so different, I think there is merit to the idea that this was sort of that first like alternative rock band, first indie rock band. And, you know, we all listen to music that evidently has sort of spawned from stuff like this. And so did I like it? No, but I do think it's important. And, you know, I think it's you should listen to it. Phil Zone, what's your take? Yeah, so I mean, obviously I'm pro the record. I can give this a pretty hard yes. Some things I'd like to say about that, like on top of the yes, are uh, I want to say that I think Loaded is better than this record. Just as a listen, I think it's a better Velvet Underground record. I didn't actually go back and listen to Transformer, which is sort of the the solo Lou Reed record that I think of when I think of Lou Reed. That's got to be the one with Walk on the Wild. Correct, on it, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That's a better that's a good, record. Too. That's a good record, yeah. Dave, Absolutely. So David Bowie so, at the uh, helm on that one. Yeah, yeah, right. So uh, I, I don't want to pretend that this is Lou Reed's best work or that there aren't some like really 
weird artsy things about this record. But I think this record is fantastic. I think uh, I think it sort of highlights this weird Mad Men culture of like the sort of pop culture Northeast versus like the weird hippie psychedelia thing that was happening in the 60s. I also think, and Tom, I think, uh, uh, Rob, it's interesting that you flag the way we sort of waffled on like what the criteria is week for week. Because this re- record actually, Tom, it made me think of you calling out the Weird Al record, uh, Dare to be Stupid, is a must listen, which I still haven't listened to, but I feel like this record sort of informed my opinion on why I might listen to that record, because I feel like this record might make you realize you like something, right? Like, why do you need to listen to it? Because there's a lot in here, and you might learn something about yourself. I'm done. Oh, it's He's talking to you, Tom. <laughs> well Jesus done. Christ, it's more that goddamn pretentious bullshit <laughs> change your life <laughs> yeah it's not gonna change your life it's just gonna maybe result in you listening to the weird owl record with open ears <laughs> so which might change your life <laughs> that, that no, I, I, I think it's a decent point about and part of the whole premise of this show right is for us to get out of our echo chambers of what we always listen to at least occasionally and try to challenge ourselves with some new things you know, I believe that either way, even if you don't like the record, it, it still is going to have an influence on you, right? And I feel that about all the records we've covered before, even the ones I didn't like. I'm, I'm glad I listened to them even yet, right? So uh, it's a yes for me. I think that's obvious. I've been playing Defender for the whole hour here. And <laughs> listen, I'll agree. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm actually not 100% sure if I agree it's not the best Velvet Underground record, but Loaded certainly a much easier record to like and has great songs on it. I generally like most of the Velvet Underground's catalog. It's a short catalog of four records. And I have to admit that one of the things that I'm maybe taking into account because I have been a VU fan is that I'm looking at this record in the context of all their records, which is hard to do. I get like, we're going record by record, but I, I admit I'm a little biased by that, which is to say that they're a band that has changed their sound sort of continually and sort of move forward as a band. I always respect bands that don't just stay on the exact same thing. They feel like a band that even in their short tenure kind of moved forward with things, went someplace different. And the other reason we touched on it, and in fact, this whole podcast is an indication, which is art is intended to create a reaction. And just the fact that we're so polarized right here to me tells me it's something important. I, I mean that sincerely, and you can call me pretentious if you want, but the fact that we had such visceral reactions, that's why I was excited to dive into it because I knew it would be, I know it's not the easiest record to like, I get it. I understand a lot of the criticisms, but that's what art's supposed to do. It's not supposed to be middle of the road. It's not supposed to be Eric Clapton. It's supposed to make you either love it or hate it, feel something hard. Can that be our motto? Music is not supposed to be Eric Clapton. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I would 100% sign on for that. (laughs) You know, it's it's a funny note. I I have a note here on heroin that... uh, I, I wish Ginger Baker was on drums, which I feel like is an allusion to like the actual goodness that was close to Clapton as opposed to just Clapton. Anybody else want to say anything bad about Clapton? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think we can call that a wrap on the Velvet Underground and Nico. They're on the list by a slim margin split decision in this particular Supreme Court. Glad we had five people on the call. Thank God. <laughs> All right, Lou Reed, you can, you can rest in your grave easy. You bastard. Now, I think the only thing that remains is to hear about what we're going to be listening to and talking about next week. Tom? All right. Yeah, I'm, here I am crossing my fingers for uh, the Velvet Underground squeeze as the next <laughs> album we're going to listen to. 
Uh, but on. yeah, let's uh, let's bust out the Albinator 5000, get that bad boy spinning up, and so next week we will be listening to drum roll, please. Dong 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 dong. That's their version of a drum roll, just all eight notes. Okay, we got Steve Earle's Guitar Town. That is a absolutely horrendous title for an album. <laughs> Guitar <laughs> Town. Stylistic left It would have been much better if it was from the band Whiskey. But Whiskey is that Town? old country? 80s country, Whiskey right? Town. I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's 80s country. Yeah, because Steve Earle is like, he was on The Wire. He was like Bubbles and a sponsor on The Wire. Really? The grizzled really? dude who talks yeah, about how he's got the bug. Yeah, Whalen, yeah. So is this guy so the, he, the dad of uh, Justin Towns Earl? Uh, uh, is that the same? Oh, it's got to be. Ooh, I have mm. no idea. It's a good question. I was just waiting yeah. for Adam to say yeah and watch The Wire. <laughs> oh, I haven't. You haven't watched <laughs> any, The Wire? Dude, what any, the hell, man? Right. Any great pop culture thing that you want to talk about, I likely have not seen, listened just to just it. Just watch The Wire, it, man. It. Yeah. It, it's good. I, I, I'll pile on here. It's intentionally oh, out of I, tune. I'm sure it is. <laughs> I'll throw it on the list. Oh yeah, Justin Towns Earl. He is the he is the dad of Justin Towns Towns Earl. That's good. All right, I think it's time to wrap this one up. It's been a lovely, contentious evening with y'all. And if you think we're totally nuts for liking or hating this record, take your pick. Please, please let us know. Our email address is one thousand and one. The number album complaints at gmail dot com shoot us an email we'll take that into our hearts into our souls into our veins perhaps cheap <laughs> until next time this has been 1001 album complaints i have been rob i have been tom i've been alan i'm adam and i'm phil boosh 